Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. We all, to take the blazingly obvious, feel stress at some points in our life. It's, it's an unavoidable part of life. It's actually wired into us. As part of the brilliance of evolution, stress motivated us to, you know, run away in the face of a saber-toothed tiger, for example. The problem is these days our stress response is often triggered by traffic jams or overloaded inboxes or, you know, a meeting with the boss. So our guest this week is an ace stress researcher whose thesis is that not all stress is bad. In fact, she's going to teach us how in certain circumstances you can actually co-opt stress and use it to your advantage. Her name is Madupe Akinola, and she is the, she has a long title here, Sanford C. Bernstein and Co., Associate Professor of Leadership and Ethics at Columbia Business School. That's a long way of saying she's a big deal. Uh, she's also one of the stars of a new course that we just dropped on the 10% Happier app. It's called Stress Better. It's a seven-day course on how to handle stress every day, uh, we organize this one the way we organize all of our courses. Every day you get a short little video, and it's followed by a short guided meditation. And the central idea of this course is is that you you can't change the fact that life is stressful sometimes, but you can change how you respond to it. If you want to check the course out, you can start it for free at 10percent.com slash stress. That's T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash stress. Or if you already have the app, you can find it uh, in the, the Courses tab. Also, just uh, before one last item of business here, in the coming days, we're going to post a bonus meditation from that course on this feed from 7A Selassie, who's another one of the experts um, we use in the in the course. So look out for that sometime this week. I really enjoyed uh, talking to Madupe. She's got a, a series of degrees from Harvard. Uh, she's worked as a consultant for major companies such as HSBC and Staples. She's also worked with police departments across the country. Uh, we talked about thriving under stress, the relationship between stress and creativity, and the impact diversity has on stress. Uh, we started, though, with her really quite fascinating story uh, of how she became a relatively recent convert to meditation. I, I love hearing uh, from such a skeptical, high-wattage, high-achieving person as she describes her Kind of interesting, twisty, turny journey toward uh, a, a pretty deep embrace of meditation. So here we go. Here is Madupe Akinola. Well, this is fun. I'm glad you came. Thank Me you for doing too. this. Me too. I'm so excited to be here. I know you started meditating in the not-too-distant past. Can you tell me that story? How did this come to be? Yeah, so I I guess it. W- I would say that I started trying meditating four years ago. Just tried to do five minutes of breathing a day. Why? Why did you think that, that would be good for you? So I have this amazing acupuncturist and I was just trying, I'm, I'm in that phase where I was trying to figure out who do I want to be in this next chapter of my life? You know, you hit those forties and you're kind of like, who am I? What is the world saying I should be? How can I be happier? 10% happier, <laughs> all that stuff. And so I went to this amazing acupuncturist And she was basically like, oh, tell me your life story, whatever, whatever, whatever. And she said one of the things she tries to do is just get people to breathe, take five minutes to breathe. And as an academic, my mind is racing all the time. I'm paid to think. 
And the idea of not thinking and just being present and breathing seemed like a nice thing to do and to try. Knowing you a little bit, I suspect your mind was racing before you became an academic. This is true. My, I like to say I inherited my mind racing. It came from my parents. I think their minds raced when they came to the States 50 years ago by themselves to start a new life. So this is, I think it's in my genes. And so now it's kind of like, how do I work on removing some of that and really figuring out what it takes for me to be in a place of peace? So just by way of reference, where did your parents come from? So my dad's from Nigeria. My mom's from Togo. They grew up in Ghana. They were born and raised there and then moved to the States in 69. So this is literally the 50th anniversary of them being in the States. Left everything. They were the only ones who came here in their families. To do what? To just have a better life. My dad actually came um, for college. He started college here. Um, Never finished. So I'm truly a first-generation African-American um, first to go to college in my family, my sisters and I. And my mom, she did get a college degree later, maybe 10, 15 years after immigrating to the States. So they left that because it's a land of opportunity. And say, they had some friends who had come to New York. And so they figured, you know, let's do this. We want a greater life for ourselves, a greater life for our children that we have in the future because they hadn't had us yet. Um, and so I think that that in and of itself Coming to some a new place just allows you or creates a different type of stress that you're not used to. And I think that that gets passed down. Did you see them stressing when you were a little girl? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's not, first of all, three kids in New York City. That's stress. And all three of you went to a ridiculously high achieving school right here on the Upper East Side. We did. We did. We went to the Brearley School K through 12, 13 year club. Um, so and your parents must have, to, to get a kid into one of these schools is very hard. Yep. So your parents must have been pushing, pushing, pushing. So it's amazing because my parents, the way they found out about Brearley, my mom was an educator. So she had a teaching certificate that she got in Ghana. So she's very into education. My dad was, too, because he came to the States for education. When they got here, they met this amazing woman, Auntie Sandra, who's like a godmother to us, a friend. She had a daughter, Suyen, and they loved Suyen. They were like, this is the most articulate, brilliant person. Where does she go to school? Well, Suyen went to the Brearley School. So my parents were like, our kids are going to go to Brearley. And that was it. They figured out what Brearley was, learned more about Brearley from Auntie Sandra, and we got in. Um, and the rest is history. And my mom ended up teaching there for 30 years. Oh, your mom taught there too. She taught there. They ended up seeing, or she'd come and, and, uh, take us to school and, uh, would do things like teach kids about, um, African traditions and stuff like that. And the head of the lower school saw her and how talented she was in teaching and offered her a job. And she started working there. So it's really an amazing story of, Two people with vision and with hopes and dreams and coming here and living the American dream. But with that comes stress. And with that comes, I mean, your original question was, how were your parents stressed or did you watch them or see the stress that they experienced growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Just trying to make ends meet. It's not easy being African-American or African in this new, in this, in the U.S. Accents insults, things like that. So that was stressful. And then also financially making ends meet. So we saw it regularly, regularly. And you kind of take a lot of that on and you don't even realize it. So 
my mind has been racing, I guess, all my life. Um, and learning how to slow it down and be present and figure out what I want and what I need and what I'm about, um, especially when there are lots of pressures that then come from trying to live the American dream, trying to pass that on to the next generation. It, it's it's a lot of pressure. And so peeling that off has been something that I've been more focused on lately, which is why I went to the acupuncturist and she was like, try to breathe five minutes a day. And the funny thing is, guess what? I The first thing I did was um, I put in my calendar on my iPhone, breathe like it. <laughs> I put a five-minute breathe calendar, in there, exactly, yeah, yeah, a e-bike, calendar yes. invitation to myself <clears throat> to breathe. And every day I'd kind of look at it and I'd be like, yeah, I should be doing that. What, did not. she give you any instructions uh, beyond just breathe? She's just, yeah, no. Just sit, close your eyes, and try to breathe for five minutes. And that those five minutes felt like an eternity. An eternity, which is so crazy because you're like, you sit on the subway for 30 minutes to get wherever you want to get most times. But five minutes of breathing seems like an eternity. It felt like an eternity. So I was like, this is nice. This is cute. Maybe one day I'll do that again and whatever. Try it every now and then. And more and more I'd try it, but then was like, this is just not for me. This breathing thing is not for me. I'll work out. I'll exercise. That makes me present and, you know, alive and all that. But the breathing, no, not interested. And then um, what got me to doing a bit more? I started then doing more self-work and realizing that part of what I needed to learn to be better at is feel my emotions. Well, if I if memory serves, I was looking at some. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. notes you you had a chat with my one of my chief advisors samuel johns who yes produces the show, one of one of our producers on the show and he said something that you had gone on a course some sort of uh, what's it called yes. hoffman institute yes i've been hearing about the oh hoffman institute what is that the hoffman institute is basically 
a place where type A achievers go to figure out all the baggage that they picked up along the way from their parents and families that they want to better understand in an effort to figure out what's healthy and what's unhealthy of those patterns that you picked up. So the Hoffman Institute teaches you what you learn from your mom, what you learn from your dad, from just watching them, from observing, from from being their children, and which of these habits are healthy and have gotten you where you are, but which of these habits are not healthy anymore, and you can go even further in who you want to be in your life by dropping some of those. What's a good example for me? I like to focus on me being a middle child. And a pattern or a habit that I saw was that, you know, my younger sister needed a lot of attention because she was six years younger. My older sister was the rebel, so she needed a lot of attention. And so they both took up a lot of emotional space. And so that meant that I didn't ever really want to show my emotions. Like, they're showing theirs. I want to be present for everybody and feel your emotions and feel your emotions. But if you asked me what mine were, I'd be like, I don't know. What? Emotions? No, I don't feel emotions. I'm just, I just live. So part of the breathing, when I first went to the acupuncture, she said, um, well, how are you feeling? And I'm, I usually say tired. She's like, that's not really emotion. Like, what is, that's a physical sensation, but, you know, happy, sad joyful, playful, annoyed, whatever. And I'm like, I don't really know. But you must have had some emotions because there was something driving you to the acupuncturist. You you said you made an oblique reference to being in your 40s or something. But something was go- yeah. there was something churning in your life. Yes. Well, one of the key things that was churning in my life was not knowing whether or not I wanted to have children. Uh. I didn't know if I wanted to have children. And I felt like, just confused about that. What do I want? What does the world want? What does my family want? You know, what does my partner want? Like, what, who am I and what do I want? And how do I want to live this life? And and for somebody who wasn't maybe in, super in touch with her feelings, it would be confusing because you knew the intellectual arguments on exactly. both sides. Exactly. And when you look around, everyone else has them. So why wouldn't you? Feelings or babies? Babies. <laughs> and I guess everyone else has feelings, too which I'm good at detecting everyone else's feelings, but my own was not. I've had the same problem. I actually did a, a specific workup at a compassion lab at uni- the University of Berkeley. And what they found was that they did all these tests, like a half a day's test. They found that I'm really good at reading other people's emotions and terrible at projecting my own. Yes. And, and, so, and so what Hoffman Institute does it, is it helps you understand the range of emotions that you have and it tries to tap into what those emotions are that you're feeling and where those emotions came from. Where do they come from? Oh, wow. That reaction that I had was what I used to see my mom doing. And when she, she'd react in this way, oh, or my dad would react in this way, or some of the happiest times I felt in, in growing up was when I got a good grade. So just linking all of these patterns and habits that you develop that you don't even know you're developing that are kind of in the ether of your life. Hoffman teaches you what those are and then helps you say, okay, maybe I need to tweak this. Maybe I don't need to live for a good grade anymore. Maybe I don't need to keep on accomplishing, 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 because that's what brought me so much joy. And instead I can just take a walk in the park and feel joy, Um, feel my emotions and feel joy, breathe and feel joy. 
So it's a really special place. And there are some amazing people that go to Hoffman Institute, whether it's, you know, Hollywood actors or just highly accomplished educators, um, highly accomplished actors, highly you name the area, um, doctors, you name it. People go to Hoffman and this a range of ages, too. There was a person who had just finished college who went to Hoffman. And um, I think we had an 80 year old all trying to figure out what are some of the ways in which I can leave a live a more fulfilled, happier life. And what do I need to change? So you did acupuncture, then you go off to Hoffman, and acupuncturist tells you five minutes of a little bit of meditation. Uh, you struggle with that because I think, frankly, because she didn't give you actual instructions. But there may have been other might might, might have been multifactorial. That's just my outside view, not yeah. knowing that much. And then you go off to Hoffman and you start to realize, oh yeah, I'm not feeling my emotions. Uh, there's something up here. And then how does that? Then you take a radical step which I'll let you describe, but how and why and when did you do that? So Hoffman includes a lot of guided meditation. And so being in these environments where you're sitting for 10, 15, 20 minutes, going through a guided meditation helped me to really see the value of meditation and helped me to see and feel what it means to just have vision and to envision yourself walking through a field, things like that, that aspect of meditation guided. Then um, I realized that there are so many different types of meditation, and the sitting and breathing was not necessarily the right one for me at the time, but my acupuncturist said, why don't you try tonal meditation? And one of the things I realized in Hoffman is that not only is the, are the emotions tough for me, but then also the feeling of bodily sensations. And what I loved about tonal meditation... I don't know what tonal meditation tonal is. Tonal meditation is just when you say, uh, you take um, a vowel or something and you just say it out loud as a breath. So, ah, uh, ah. Uh, Your neighbors think you're crazy when you do this? Well, you know, you know New York, they don't know what's going on. Um, so I guess they might. Um, they're like, is that yelling? Is that, is she Okay. Um, and what I loved about tonal medita- meditation was that I could feel it uh, in my lungs. I could feel it. And that was powerful for me. So I could do that for 15 minutes. So I got up to, to tonal meditation for 15 minutes and I was like, I'm in it. I can meditate and whatever. And I even there were times where I wanted to go for longer. I'm like, who is this person? So then she said, okay, the next step is to try a 10-day type of meditation thing. Um, and, and she recommended Vipassana and, um, she had done Vipassana. She's done a range of different meditation, meditation practices, but she, Vipassana is one that she really likes for the kind of letting go, just 10 days, let go and feel your bodily sensations, which I think she felt would be good for me as a person who needed to feel more and who suppresses emotions a lot. Can I describe just for people who Vipassana it can be that term can be used to describe a whole range of things, but in this case, Vipassana is, is Madupe is using it to describe a school of meditation taught by a uh, Indian guy who was raised in Burma, where he learned uh, meditation. His name was S. N. Goenka. He died in the recent years. Actually, there's a great obituary, belated obituary, written about him by my friend and former guest on this podcast, David Gellis, in the New York Times. 
not too long ago. It's on my Twitter feed if you want to go look back at that. Anyway, he was a, a really remarkable businessman, so not some monk or something like that. He was a businessman who took the kind of Buddhist meditation called Vipassana that was being taught in Burma back in the day, still taught there now, and or I guess the country's now called Myanmar, and he uh, started teaching it to secular folks, lay people, and now he's got centers all over the world, and their signature service is a 10-day silent meditation retreat. Now, you can do it here in the United States, but if you're an overachiever who happens to be named Madhube Akinola, uh, you go to India to do it you go, by yourself. You go to India, where Goenka decided to start his first center. By yourself, you go. Yes, you do. So I went... And but but let me say beforehand, um, my acupuncturist said at least for an hour every now and then, just try to sit, <laughs> light a candle and just sit because you're going to be meditating for 10 hours a day. But was she giving you instructions for how to sit? She just said, just sit and breathe and yeah, be that, present in your breath. I worry about that. And, you know, just yeah, she and you could do that. Did you find it massively frustrating or like was were you getting anywhere? For the hour felt like 10 hours. Yeah. Um, but there came a point where I would wake up saying, oh my gosh, I need to sit for an hour. And that was the weirdest moment for me because that's even before you went on the retreat, even before I went on the retreat, there was a point where I was feeling like, okay, I'm going to sit for this hour and it's torture. I'm going to set my, my alarm for 30 minutes. Then when the 30 minutes hasn't been 30 minutes, it hasn't been 30 minutes. When it's 30 minutes, finally 30 minutes, darn, I need to do another 30 minutes because it hasn't an hour. So that would happen. And then. One day I was kind of, I woke up and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. And then I said, no, I need to do this. And I sat there for the hour and it felt peaceful. Well, what's interesting, I mean, I have a million questions about that, but just in the spirit of moving things along, the, the, um, what's interesting about the Vipassana technique is it's a real technique. Yes. Um, and it's very focused on what's called a body scan where yes. you're uh, f- systematically moving through the body, feeling different parts of the body, starting at the head or the toes yes. and then moving up or down. Yes. Um, so I can see why your acupuncturist thought, okay, for somebody who's not feeling bodily sensations or feelings, this makes sense for her. So when you arrived in India and arrived at this retreat center, were you losing your mind? Were you like, oh, this is great. I'm psyched to be here. How were you feeling? Um, I Well, my first thought was I'm going to be the only non-Indian here. You know, I'm going. I was going to India, and I should have known that I there was a potential that I'd be the only non-Indian there. But it just kind of hit me when everyone around me was Indian, which no problem with that. I'd been to India before, but I was like, oh my gosh, I've left New York, I've come to India. I'm going to be here, sitting here in ten days, no, just just me. Um, and it all hit me when I got there. And then I met four other people from other countries. And we were all like, we're just here to experience this. And it just it changed the environment for me to feel like, wow, we are bold, brave people, courageous coming to another country to try this. So and the energy I felt from those um, four other women was really powerful. Even though you couldn't talk day. to them. So that first day you can talk for a little bit, didn't talk in detail. And then we went into silence and didn't talk at all. But that energy, you really can connect to people's energies in an amazing way that I didn't really understand before I fully got into meditating in this way. So met these women. I was like, okay, I can do it. We've got this. And then the first day sitting there, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Ten days of this. 
I'm laughing because I've been in the yes. exact same position. Ding, ding, ding at 4 a.m. <laughs> and then you need to be in the hall at 4.30. They walk around ringing a bell to wake yes. you up. Yes. And I was kind of like, okay, 4.30 to 6.30, sitting there, my knees hurting, crossed leg. Like when I was doing my one hour, I was just sitting on my couch and whatever. But then you get to these the center and people are cross-legged and my knee hurts. Like, is my knee supposed to hurt? Is it, what, what, what's going on here? And how am I supposed to feel? And, um, I could talk to the teacher, but I don't know if I want to ask the teacher anything. And, uh, I'm just going to sit, sit it out. So that first day was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I have nine more days of this, but it's okay. But then that, what happens each night is going, you see a tape of him and he kind of explains what you just went through and he captured everything I was experiencing in that video. He was like, your monkey mind is going lots of places. You're wondering, why am I here? You're really hungry and really excited for the next meal. You And so I said, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one. This guy understands what he's doing. I understand what, that this is part of the process. Just sit with it. And so I sat with it. The next day, stuff started coming up. Like, oh, I didn't even know that emotion was there. Or, oh, my thumb starts hurting. Or, oh, the... And that was, again, powerful because let me tell you this, my thumb, when I did Hoffman, hurt me the whole time. I came back, I told my acupuncturist, like, I broke my thumb. I don't know, maybe we were doing some things, I sprained my thumb. And she said, you know, your thumb um, is linked to, uh, is your the uh, meridian that's linked to grief. And so what you're feeling is, unmetabolized grief that's coming up and it's manifesting itself in your thumb. Now I'm like, okay, I'm trying to understand all this stuff. I'm not sure what you're talking about, but I'm going to believe you <laughs> because you're an expert at this. And and Dan, like you, I'm a little bit of a skeptic about everything. A little bit? You're, uh, you may be more skeptical than no, I No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, so she said this about this, you know, this thumb meridian linked to your lung and grief. So um, I was like, okay, I guess I'll process my grief and the thumb pain might go away. Thumb pain went away. But when I started the 10-day meditation, the thumb pain came back, which was powerful for me because it said that there might be some repressed grief or repressed something that I have that is coming up in this process. There are some emotions that I have, you know, really, really stifled that's coming up in this process. So let me stick with it and let me sit with it. I know a retreat is not that, you know, there's a difference between the type of insight work that you're you're looking at, the sort of impersonal process of the mind on a retreat. Uh, you're not supposed to be caught up in the story as much. Uh, it's different from the sort of emotional work of, of therapy or something like that. But do, do you have a visibility into what that grief was or is? So, you know, it kind of goes back to what I said, things you pick up from your family. When my parents moved here and left everything, that was painful. And two years later, my mom was pregnant with my older sister, and her mom passed away. And she she didn't really fully get to go back. She didn't get to, you know, really mourn that loss. And as a child, I remember there were times where my mom would have red eyes and she'd say she'd have a headache and I would do everything I could to like wet some paper towels and um, get some ice and put it on her temples. She later told me that it was because she was crying because she missed her mom. 
So I really feel like some of that grief, it's, some of this is generational mm-hmm. stuff that is in you. And I feel like I was carrying some of that grief, some of that grief and pain that my mom carried. And again, I say this and I'm like, is this all metaphysical and whatever? I don't know. But I know that there's some grief that came from somewhere in me that I needed to process and deal with and accept existed. And even telling my mom that I was experiencing that grief and that I remembered times where I would try to make her feel better, she later, after Hoffman, revealed to me that she was crying. So so mind you, and let me let me be more clear in my story. Grief coming out in the thumb, Hoffman actually tells you to go back and talk to your parents and learn more about them. In the process of learning more was when I realized that those headaches that I thought my mom had were her tears crying for her mom. I didn't learn that till decades later, till trying now trying to uncover some of that. And so I feel like in my body is a lot are a lot of these emotions from other people, from other things. And what I'm trying to do now is figure out what some of those are and be present in them and then figure out what some of my own grief is and being present with that. I also, to be honest, had um, a couple of miscarriages. And I feel like some of the grief was the grief of that that I didn't allow myself to process. Oh, well, that's huge. So having been through that as the male partner of somebody who had a miscarriage, that's that's really painful. Very painful. And I just, you know, as a person who just accomplishes the accomplishes and continue, I just continued and, you know, didn't feel my emotions about that. So I feel like it was my mom's um, repressed grief. It was my repressed grief that was coming up. And that is some powerful stuff that sitting and being present and feeling bodily sensations allows you to be present with stuff you didn't even know was there. Mm -hmm. So by day two, I was like, okay, this thumb is hurting. There's something here. By day three, I was like, wow, there's still seven more days. But man, I am just feeling present with myself in a way that I've never felt present with myself. And I am seeing things and images and hearing things that I was have never fully been attuned to. And there was nothing like that. And I was also, there was some repressed grief from a friend who had passed away two weeks before I went to the meditation center. And here was the moment where I was like, wow, this is amazing. Remember I, m- I mentioned there were four women I met the day of the day it all started, we talked for maybe half an hour, then didn't talk for 10 days. Once the meditation was over, we got to talk. And in the meditation, I was really thinking a lot about my friend who had passed away of breast cancer, how she would have loved doing this with me, um, how I missed her, how all that. Finished the um, 10 days, and um, one of the women that I'd met said that she was partially there because she was in remission from breast cancer. And so when I say that energy, this connected energy is kind of there and there was something powerful for me about knowing that I was mourning and knowing that the energy of my friend was kind of there through this other woman and that we were connected in that way is something that you can't experience without sitting and being present and just trying to let all the other stuff go. 
So um, that was my 10-day experience, and it was a (laughs) love-hate, but it made me say there is something powerful about meditation. And believe it or not, I did that December 22nd. Of 2018. 2018. And uh, finished, I guess it was January 2nd or something like that. And I've meditated for an hour every single day since. How are how are do you feel like you're you've transformed in any significant way? Wait, I want you to just honor the fact that <laughs> I just said that I've tried to meditate for five minutes and couldn't do it. Then I got to my tonal for fifteen and now I meditate every out day for an hour. I don't know who this person is. Do you Dan. think you're looking for a gold star? I so, am. Yeah, I like I'll give you one. I mean, it's it's amazing. Okay, it is you. an amazing thank achievement. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, honor my accomplished, accomplished, accomplished self. <laughs> so yes. So do I feel like it's transformed me? I just feel like I'm just more present. Mm. I'm more present in my life. Just another way to say it is you just. You're you're here. You're awake. I'm awake. Yeah, instead of autopilot. I'm awake yeah. and not on autopilot. And there, the, last week something. Just the happened. fact that you can make fun of the achieve, achieve, achieve because you can either be in that story and owned by it and not even know what's going on, yep. or you can see it as just a neurotic pattern that you've had since you were a kid, and you can make fun of it. And sometimes you're owned by it, but sometimes you're out of it enough to notice. Yep. It's there, but you don't have to. And it comes back when I meditate too. Achieve, achieve, achieve. Like you weren't good today. (laughs) You know, this wasn't a good meditation day because your mind was, your monkey mind was everywhere, you know, and da, da, da. And then I have to be like, no, it was a day and it was a meditation day. Don't judge it. Just be in it. It is what it is. And living life that way is powerful. It is so powerful. Um, So I feel like I'm a lot more calm. I feel like I... Just notice more. Some annoying email comes and I want to write back and say da 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 da. And, and then I realize, oh, that's just ego. That really bothered you for some reason. Why? Delete. <laughs> Sit with it. So it helps me to just be like, okay, this half of my reactions have nothing to do with the person or the thing. It's coming from a deeper place. Sit with what that deeper place is and just be with it. And it's just helpful. It makes me less agitated. It makes me, and don't get me wrong, I get agitated and stuff hits me. I just think that I react in a different way um, that's more attuned to the deeper things that are underlying that reaction. And I feel so much healthier for that. And I feel like I'm more pleasant to be around for that. And then little things start happening and you're kind of like, well, where did that come from? Like a call I got from a friend that was kind of like, I really appreciate blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you've never said that before. That's kind of cool. So you see people around you changing in a, in a weird way. And it's weird. I kind of am like, I'm in this magical fairy tale land where I meditate for an hour a day and I don't even know what this per, what this is, but Hey, I like her. You know, that's great. <laughs> you know, I that's like great. her. So. People say to me, "It's not." I was actually just on the phone on Skype doing an interview with a uh, a book I wrote is coming out in Brazil, and some Brazilian writer or whatever wanted to interview me, and she was asking, "How do you know if it's working?" And you just answered it. I said, "You know if it's working if you're less of a swear word that I can't use because I'm a Disney employee that starts with an A." Uh, 
to yourself and others. Yep. And and that's the metric I offer. Yep. And you just described it. Like, I don't know what this is. It's a little weird, but I don't know who this person is, but I like her. Yep. And this person will who didn't like to feel emotions and would not like to let people see her cry and vulnerability. Oh, no, we don't do that. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes in the middle of meditation, some tears will come. Not sometimes, like often. And I'm like, okay, all right. Don't know who this is, but it's okay. And that is pretty cool. And it reminds me, we were given the, this range of emotions for a reason. Why are we only taught to use half of them? No, let's use the full range. Let's experience the full range and be okay with that. I like to think of it as this muscle. I've overdeveloped the muscle of like resilience and strong and not vulnerable and blah, blah, blah. But I need to also then develop the muscle of vulnerable, sad, it's okay, you know, all of those other, that range of emotions. Um, and to the extent that we can forgive ourselves more um, and teach the younger generations that it's okay to use that full range of emotions, I really feel like we're going to be, well, we will have a happier and healthier society. So that's now what I'm working on. And I teach MBAs and to the extent that I can pass a little bit of this on to them in some ways earlier on, like, why do I have to learn this in my 40s? Couldn't I have learned it in my 30s? You know, like, why, why so late? So if we can do this a little earlier, um, I think we're going to make a lot of strides in terms of people being able to fulfill their purpose in a unique way. Okay, so you just walked me very gracefully up to your professional life. So I want to talk about that because you do some fascinating things in your professional life. Can you just describe in a general way the thrust of your research? The thrust of my research is that we encounter stress in so many different ways in our daily lives. And we've been taught the message that stress is bad. You have it. You want to run away from it. You want to avoid it. But in my research, I show that not all stress is bad. And we kind of know this because we've experienced situations where we had some stress and it propelled us to another level. And so what I try to show in my research is I try to distinguish between stress that can be maladaptive, that can make you freeze and not do well, from stress that can be adaptive, that can allow you to be in that kind of flow state where you have the resources, the intellectual resources, the physical resources to really accomplish that goal. So I differentiate a stress-enhancing mindset from a stress-debilitating mindset, and I show the situations where one or the other can help performance. So that's my research in a nutshell. And there's so many types of situations that can engender stress. Diversity can be stressful because it's people who are different from each other working together. Power dynamics, you interacting with your boss or someone who um, has power over you, that can be stressful. So I look at the context in organizations that engender stress and how that stress can help or hurt particular outcomes that we're interested in. All right, I love this stuff. You also have done some stuff on creativity. I just want to name that because I want to come back to it. Yes, I have because we think, you know, oh, maybe if you're in a negative mood, that's a bad thing and you won't be creative. But I've actually found that in certain situations, if you're in a negative mood, but you actually um, have a disposition that is aligned with um, uh, kind of being vulnerable to negative mood, that actually can result in you being more creative. 
So I think of it as the depressed artist effect, but we can talk more about that or dig deeply into that. Rest assured, we're going to do all of that. That was a good overview, but that was the beginning. Yes. So uh, let's talk about the two mindsets you talked about. Stress is an enhancer versus stress is debilitating. Is my re-articulating that correctly? That is correct. So how do we know and how do we move from enhanced – from debilitating to enhance in any given situation, especially since once we're stressed, it may be hard to be flexible. So one thing is just when you're stressed, noticing, okay, I'm stressed right now. And you can take that stress and say, okay, I'm stressed right now. This is an awful situation. It's terrible. I'm so frustrated. I'm never going to do well on this because there's so much stress I'm feeling. There's so much pressure, whatever. That's a stress is debilitating mindset that this is this downward spiral that we get on. And that can have negative consequences. Stress is enhancing mindset is, okay, I'm stressed, but not all stress is bad. Well, why am I stressed right now? What do I care about? Well, I care about doing well. Why do I care about that? Because I want to impress the people around me. Well, why do I care about that? Because I really love my job and I really want to stay in it. Um, why do I care about that? Because I think that I'm, I'm operating in my purpose in my job. Why do I... So then you, you're taking this moment of stress and it's getting you to, I'm stressed because I want to do well because I'm operating in my purpose, which almost kind of deflates the balloon because you're getting to the underlying reason why and it's allowing you to see that big picture, which then in, in and of itself reduces some of the stress you're feeling. So we just shot with you this new stress course that's up on the 10% will be up on the 10% happier app by the time this that our listeners are hearing this conversation. We, you were the expert. You served as the expert in this course quite well, I will add. Thank you. And there were two techniques that uh, you taught us that we then turn around and have you teach the um, the users in the app. I don't know what they're called, so I'm gonna. We, we came up with shorthands, uh, with shorthand for them um, among the staff that was putting the, the the production team that was putting the course together. The first um, we called it co-opting. Now I don't know if that's actually you, you'll you'll correct me on what the actual title is, but it, it, your advice, if and I'll say the beginnings of this, and maybe you can pick up and just correct where I went wrong and and fill in the gaps. The advice is if you're feeling stressed in any given moment, especially if it has to do with performance. You know, you've got a big meeting, you've got to give a talk, you've got to see your boss, or you're taking a test, yep. to notice you're stressed, and then to tell yourself, actually, no, no, this, this this stress right now isn't bad for me, it's actually my body getting prepared to act. Yes. So another way to call that co-opting is reappraising. Reappraising. Reappraise your stress. Often, or in some of my research, we tell people... When you feel stress and when you feel that bodily stress response, what do I mean by that? Your heart is racing. Your hands are getting sweaty. If you tell yourself, you know, this physiological reaction is actually good. Sometimes people who experience this physiological reaction really do well. Then instead of being like, this is a bad thing that my heart is racing, it's like, oh, this is propelling me to do even better. I remember hearing that and I took a drama class when I was a kid. Yeah. That being nervous before you walk out on stage is good for you if you don't let it, you know, yank you around. Exactly. And so just remembering that, like, this isn't a bad thing when you're right, if right before you're about to take the SATs, telling students that 
helps them to perform well. That's actually one of the studies you've done. Yeah, well, so one of my collaborators did a study, and they did it for people who are about to take, I think, the GRE, the graduate record examination, or it might have been the um, the uh, um, the test for med school. Yeah. And is that GMAT? GMAT is for business school. Oh, I don't know. But one of those tests. And they said, just remember that uh, when you feel that stress response, that it's actually okay. That that people do well when they feel that stress response. And people did better on the just test. Just knowing that. Just knowing that. People who were given those instructions versus instructions that said nothing about your stress um, did well. I've done that for people right before they um, go into a negotiation. When you feel this, uh, a little bit of stress during the negotiation, that's an okay thing. So people who got that intervention where got more money in the negotiation. This, there's physiology here too. There is physiology here too. Our bodies were designed to give us the energy and resources that we need when we experience stress to, for instance, run away from the lion, which was the antiquated way, but now to really thrive under that stress if you're able to manage it psychologically in um, an adaptive way. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're able to say, okay, I am feeling this stress. This isn't going to kill me. This is a good thing. Then your heart can keep on racing and you're going to be okay. You, 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 you feel the racing heart as an ally instead of exactly. somebody who's a mutiny. Exactly. It's going to help you versus hurting you. And when you feel that and you experience that psychologically, then the walls of your blood vessels expand more of um, the blood is circulating through your thoracic cavity and through your body efficiently getting to the places it needs to get to. And that's a piece of how you're able to then thrive under that stress. Get into a flow state. Get into a flow state. Get into a flow state. So that is um, what I try to teach people, that if we can change our mindsets about stress so that we realize that it really can have these enhancing properties, then we will also exhibit the physiology associated with that and can have better outcomes. But what if, you know, I'm, in, I'm speaking as somebody with panic disorder, um, I project myself into a stressful situation, my body's starting to stress, maybe because I have all the scar tissue around panic, that it's very hard for me psychologically or meditatively or anything to talk myself off the ledge. Do you hear this kind of pushback? Absolutely. And what's your answer? Practice makes perfect. You just need to keep practicing, 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 and figure out under there's some deeper underlying stuff that becomes our barrier. So I think it's about chipping away at those things. In addition to then telling yourself, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay. Another thing I like to say is to have people rehearse and think about the times where they did thrive under under distress or where they were having a panic moment and were able to get out of it. Because when you remember those situations, it's easier to say, oh, yeah, I've done that. I've been through that. Um, and to then push through whatever situation you're dealing with in the moment. Okay, so this is the this is technique number one that we teach in the course, this reappraisal. You're in a th- stressful situation. You have to perform. You, you start to feel the stress. And instead of getting locked into a, a rabbit hole of, oh, my God, I'm stressed. I'm, this is going to be horrible. You say, no, no, no. This is your body preparing you to act. Now, the other technique you offered, and I don't know if this is also called reappraisal, whatever, it, you described this a little bit a couple of minutes ago. It's kind of interrogating what's going on to ask yourself, I'm feeling stressed. So why is that? What's going on? Why am I stressed? And what 
you keep asking these questions until you get at what you really care about. Yeah. So the stress points you toward the meaning in your life. Right. Towards the underlying reason why you care. And if you can get to that underlying reason why you care, and there's no technical term for this, but I, we call it, my collaborator, um, Aliyah Crum, calls it um, acknowledging. Acknowledging that it's there. And it's there because I care about something. So what is the thing that I ultimately care about? And if you get to that, then it's kind of like, oh, this is this stress is for a purpose. And when we feel that this stress is for a purpose, you feel so much better about it. So you how how might this go in a in, in a situation? How would you use it? Um, I would use it, for instance, I have a session coming up where I'm going to be teaching uh, African American or senior executives at a company just how to deal with some of the stressors that they're facing as they continue to progress in the company. And to be honest. I'm stressed about it because I really want to have an impact. I really want these people to feel empowered when they leave the session. I really want them to know that they have everything in them to overcome the barriers that they face on a regular basis. So one way that I can use my stress in a bad way is to keep tweaking my slides and adding things and whatever and doing more and more and which I found myself doing and I'd say, wait, hold on. And I had to tell myself, you do this all the time. You have every single thing you need to make an impact with this group. So how does that link to the, the technique? One, it's why am I stressed? Because I care, because I want them to do well, because I know they can. And I feel like a piece of my purpose on this earth is to be able to show people how they can thrive in the environments in which they find themselves. So I care because I know that if I do my part, it'll have an impact on their journey and we'll see more senior executives of color in Fortune 500 companies and progressing in the companies that they're in. So if that's why I care, I don't need to be sitting here worried about how it's going to go. I'm good. I have everything I need to be able to teach this group what they need to be taught. So I can relax a bit in that. Then the second piece of, um, of also thinking back of, to the, all the times where I have thrived under this type of stress. I always, often have to go back to, wow, most of the times when I teach these sessions, people leave feeling really empowered. People leave feeling like, gosh, I've never heard something like that. People leave saying, wow, thank you for being a role model for us because you as an African-American woman, just seeing you teach us this stuff is meaningful because I've never had a black teacher. How about that? So I have to remind myself that my presence is helping accomplish that goal that I want to accomplish and so when I kind of do all that, this whole bubble of I have a big session that's coming up and it's deflated. The balloon is deflated and I can sleep in peace knowing that it's all going to be OK. And that sounds easier. It sounds easy, but and it is easier than we think. It's easier than we think. But mind you, this has taken a lot of the self-work to say, hold on. Where is this coming from? Hold on. Is this because you want a gold star? Hold on. Is this because you, whatever it is that has driven me in terms of getting the feeling, the positive feelings that I want in life and what I do, trying to kind of strip that away. And I don't think I was just clear what I was trying to say, but let me put it this way. Um, 
in the most simplest and kind of embarrassing terms. I have four Harvard degrees. It's not something that I share with people. (laughs) It's not something that I share. um, It's something that I'm proud of, but kind of like, that's crazy. (laughs) Your CV Um, is is a thing to behold. Yeah. And so (laughs) I, and I share that because it means when I say accomplish, accomplish, accomplish is in my genes. That's just a great example. So I like to get gold stars and I like to be perfect. And that puts so much pressure on me. And to be able to realize that that has been a driver that is no longer functional in my life has been helpful because then it allows me to say, I don't need any more accomplishment. I just need to be who I am and be present in that. And my presence will help me to get people to where I want them to be. My vulnerability will help me to get people to where I want them to be. I don't need one more gold star. I just need to be. And so that is what has helped me to come to terms with the stress that I experience regularly that comes from that burden of being one of the only, that comes from the burden of wanting to being please Being one your, of the only black people and mostly white Americans. Oh, and yeah, being coming from the burden of wanting to then please your parents who have made all these sacrifices for you comes from the burden of wanting to... If you're the only in the environment that you're in, you really want to do well because you want to show that someone like you can do well. So all of these pressures, I've now had to be like carrying the weight of a whole community. Yes, you are. You are. And I have to say now, oh, I'm good. I don't need to schmooze with that person. I'm good. I don't don't think white people understand that because I don't walk around thinking, oh, I've got to make white people. I got to like somehow you need to prove that we can do it. Uh, It's just never on my mind. Prove we can do it and um, debunk the stereotype about us. Debunk the stereotypes about African-Americans and who we are and um, all of the historical stuff and baggage that comes with African-Americans. And that's a lot of pressure and that's a lot of stress to carry with you all your life. Um, So... I partially study stress because I've lived under so much of it and I've thrived under so much of it. So how can I use some of the tools that have helped me thrive to help others thrive and also to not kill us? Because one thing I haven't said is that the stress is debilitating mindset. What happens when your body is constantly under this chronic stress is that it creates this wear and tear and this um, physiological impact affects your cardiovascular system, affects so much and can kill you. And so I also want to recognize that I study this stuff because I want to live longer and I want people who look like me and people who are just buckling under whatever stress they're under to um, learn to adapt to it in healthy ways that'll keep us around a lot longer. And in my life, the stress of being a minority, the only, that's one of the, some people deal with the stressors of um, an ill parent, of a broken family, of you name it. We all have our own stress that comes in somewhere, our own traumas. So whatever it is for you, how can you still apply and adopt these skills to push through it? I've so, you, you just said a lot of really powerful things and some of them several minutes ago that I, I've been making notes that I wanted to 
sort of um, amplify with some comments. So let me just say a few things in response to what you said because it was all amazing. Um, when you were talking about this process for which there's no name, I guess acknowledging of questioning, interrogating your stress. Okay, I'm stressed right now. Why? Why am I stressed? Oh, because I want to do well. Why do you want to do well? Because I want to help these people. And eventually through the this interrogation that you're doing with yourself, you get to the gold, which is what is important to you in your actual life? What matters the most? And it seems to me that having that connection can just calm everything down. Yeah, yeah. It takes you out of your own selfish concerns, out of your own head, yeah. which, by the way, a lot of my stress is like, I just want to look good or I want to get that money or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But if you can dig below that, then you get to a stiller waters, yes, I think. Yes, yes. I, I, the duck paddling under the water has been an analogy that has come up a lot in the past two weeks. Um, and I feel like it helps you to still paddle like heck, but become above the water. Mm -hmm. So how can we live that in a powerful way? Because in a lot of cases, you're you're also told like just, oh, the stress will go away. Mm, it's going to be present in a lot of ways. And so let's not just pretend that there are going to be situations where it's going to be gone. There are going to be situations where it is there. So while it's there, how can we at least do something to stay calm above the water is something that my colleagues and I think about a lot. The other thing you said um, that I just struck me as, as having some personal resonance is that you have had this mentality, I think, come by it honestly, given you know the stance your parents took, which, by the way, that's not a knock on your parents. Your parents did an amazing thing for their children, yeah. for their three girls. But you had this mentality of, I want the gold star. And you killed it. I mean, you killed it by any measure. But I think you're starting to see that that neurotic pattern may not be serving you right now for yep. current iteration of Madupe. Yep. And there's an idea, there's a concept that was, uh, that was mentioned to me by my coach, mm -hmm. a guy who was on this podcast recently. His name is Jerry Colonna. He's a sort of legendary executive coach and he's been working with me and um it's called the loyal soldier idea have mm -hmm. you heard about this mm -mm. The idea is based on the japanese uh story about how after world war ii there were these soldiers who hung out on the rocks i don't know if this is true or mm -hmm. legendary or or legendary i think it may be true but they they didn't know the war was over so they were holed up on the rocks in the pacific defending the homeland for years oh wow and when they were discovered they weren't you know, humiliated or anything like that. They get they were welcomed warmly, celebrated, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But decommissioned, told you don't need to fight anymore. Okay. Your gold star seeking is a loyal soldier yeah. whose gun you can gently set aside yeah. and say, Thank you for your service. We're good. Yep. And now for me, you know, my loyal soldier is probably my super stern great grandfather, not no grandfather, who was pretty mean to my mother and everybody else in his orbit until oddly enough in his later years when he became really nice. But he was really mean for eighty of his ninety years mm -hmm. and um, unhappy. And it's this kind of bully or be bullied mode yep. that yep. has operated in me for a long time. I got. I need to take Robert Johnson's gun away yep. and put it down and say that's not serving me anymore. Yeah. So I just heard that and what you were saying, and it 
popped up in my mind because I'm writing about my conversations with Jerry. I don't know if this is going to take the conversation anywhere, but it struck me as worth sharing. I love that analogy. Just put it put it down. Put it down. You're done. You know, you are you well done. The well war done. is over. The Thank war, you for your service. The war is over, you know, and you got those degrees up on your wall. The war is over. Nobody can take that away. Yeah. What are you still trying to prove? By the way, I should say you are really living this out because after we finish this interview and probably by the time it's posted, you're going to be on sabbatical. You're taking a year. You're not trying to achieve that much this year. I think you have like a crazy itinerary, so you're definitely type A about the sabbatical. Yes. You're not loafing, but you are actually going to enjoy your life and not try to like check more boxes all the time. Yes. And and mind you, the process of trying not to check more boxes has been hard because I've said to myself, maybe I'll pick up a new language and switch. (laughs) Nope, you're not. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. You're going to, you know, follow up on the projects that you're working on, maybe come up with some new ideas, but you're also going to relax. You're going to relax. Sabbatical is to recharge and to rejuvenate. And yeah, maybe some people will write a book. Maybe some people will take a class. You're not. You're not. You're going to scuba dive. Good for you. Yes. Yes. So let's talk more about stress. Not to minimize the enjoyment you're about to have scuba diving (laughs) to get you back into stress. But um, you talked about the fact that you got interested in this subject because you had felt a a variety of stress through much of your academic life and you thought it would be worth studying and one of the things you talked about was the stress of being the only, yeah. particular in this context, I think, referring to being the only African-American or yep. one of the only African-Americans in largely white environments. Yep. And so you've actually studied a lot the, the stress around diversity. Can, can you tell us what you've learned? Yeah. So some of this also came from before becoming an academic, I was in business. I was a, a consultant at a strategy consulting firm, Bain & Company. Then I got my MBA, went back to Bain & Company, and then had my epiphany of, oh, my gosh, I really want to study some of the things that I'm observing and become an academic. And one of the things I observed at Bain is that there were some amazing African-Americans um, that would come and uh, some would thrive and some wouldn't do well. And so like, you're kind of like, well, what are some of the things that are making this experience different? Um, well, one of them is being the only and feeling like, can I ask for that feedback? Will that look weak if I ask for that feedback? And will that look like I don't know what I'm doing? But we know that it is through feedback that you get input into what you can do better and what you are not doing well and all that. So one thing that I saw was that African-Americans were more nervous about getting and asking for the feedback they needed. But not only that. What about giving feedback? Well, you're typically get receiving feedback from someone who doesn't look like you, a white male, a white woman, or whatever. And there's also fears on their part. Well, I don't want to look like this feedback might seem discriminatory or that I'm not sure how to give this feedback. Oh, there's some stereotypes that say that uh, these people, this person might get angry. I don't want to anger them. And so that can also result in not getting the feedback that you need to get because the feedback giver isn't comfortable or as comfortable giving that feedback to you as a person who looks different from them than giving a feedback to someone who looks similar. Yeah, so that's a mess. That's a mess. That is a mess. And there has been tons of research showing this asymmetry in feedback process. There's processes. There's also been research showing that physiological responses differ 
when giving feedback to someone who looks like you versus giving feedback to someone who doesn't. Physiological responses that are linked to like threat and that stress is debilitating often occurs when you're giving feedback to somebody who does not look like you or receiving feedback from someone who does not look like you relative to someone who does. In an America that is browning, this strikes me as unbelievably important because we are going to be in close quarters with one another and we need to be able to function. Yeah. Or, or organizations will fail. We need, or they'll become segregated. Yes. We need to be able to function. We need to be able to recognize when these stereotypes and biases are playing a part. We need to be able to have conversations. And a piece of my work is ultimately to document that there are situations that are stressful that we might not say are stressful. So one of the reasons why I started studying physiology in the first place with Wendy Mendez, who is was my grad school advisor or one of them, is that if you ask somebody, oh, does giving feedback to a black person, ask a white person, does giving feedback to a black person make you nervous? What would they say? Of course not. No. No, I, I give feedback to anybody, whatever. But when you measure people's physiology... You can see that. And so I like to look at contexts where what you say differs from the physiological experience to be able to then say, oh, how can we intervene to change that? Because people are sometimes unwilling or even unable to really say that they're stressed um, when, they, in fact, they truly are stressed. But how do you unravel this, though? I mean, I, I, it's important data to see that people are lying to themselves when they say – they're not nervous giving feedback to somebody of a different pigmentation. But um, what do you do about that? Because the cultural stuff underneath that seems quite tangled. Yeah. So what you do is you show them research. You show them data um, of others, hundreds of others that experience that. And you ask them to notice. I mean, I know that you did. Um, there was a podcast with my collaborator, Dolly Chug. And one of the things she talks about in her book is how do you just notice and that we're not going to be perfect and never biased at all, whatever, but notice when you're potentially feeling differently. Um, the technical term for that sometimes is interception. Notice when your heart is beating. Notice when you're a little bit more nervous with this person versus that person. And then ask yourself the why questions because this is stress. Notice your stress and ask yourself why. And then that can help in changing your behavior and then having conversations about that to change behavior and to be able to treat people equally. And a lot of this is unconscious, which is why it's hard. So that's why I say just notice because there's a, there's so much value in noticing. Dolly, who you're right, you're right, she was on the show recently, Dolly Chug. It was a great episode and that's how I got to you. I'll probably have said this in the introduction, but I'll say it again. I She was sitting in the chair where you are right now, and afterwards we were chit-chatting after the recording. And she said, yeah, you might want to meet my friend Madupe Akinola. She's at Columbia. She recently got into meditation. She's a researcher in stress. I was like, yeah, I wrote it down. I went upstairs and Googled, and I watched some videos. I was like, oh, well, this person is going to be more than a podcast guest. Aww. So then you ended up in our stress course, Thank and we're trying you. to co-opt you in all sorts of ways. Anyway... One of her concepts that I think is really powerful is good-ish. Yeah. So if you think you're a good person, which most of us do consciously or subconsciously, yep. then when somebody points out that you did something racist or sexist or uh, uh, unkind, you're you that's an attack on on something so core that yep. most of us get incredibly defensive. Yeah. There's a term white fragility, for yep. example, about yep. how white people react 
in conversations around diversity. If you think of yourself as good-ish, well, that's a growth mindset. And yep. then you're like, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm good-ish, but I messed up here. Exactly. I'm good-ish, but I felt a little bit more nervous with this person versus another person. Okay, good to know. Let me check that. Let me talk about that. Let me think about that more. And let me even have a conversation with somebody about that. Where does this come from? Let me do the why dance of why do I feel this way? And and I think that can make a big difference. And for me, part of what I want is for people to increase what I, I like to refer to it as a diversity consciousness. And by that, I mean noticing when you're in an environment or when you're in exhibiting behavior that is reflective of not having as much exposure to diversity as you would like. that And that can be anybody because I have a lot of friends who went to, um, grew up in predominantly African-American environments, uh, went to predominantly African-American high schools, went to predominantly African-American colleges, and then get to these environments in the workplace and they're like, whoa. So stepping back and noticing what your assumptions are about white people, what your assumptions are about people in different socioeconomic categories, that and then having conversations about that can bridge these gaps that we have and allow us all to be, I think, work harder at being goodish so that the next person we see who looks different or the next person we see who falls into that category, we categorize them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And man, if we do that, I think our society is going to be so much more integrated and there's going to be so much more potential for working together in the way we need to to make the change that we want to make. This is a slight non sequitur, but the the a lot of what you have traditionally in your career counseled people to do in situations of stress is to tap into self awareness. Yeah. Know you're stressed. Yeah. Do you think you were missing something in that you only recently started actually meditating yourself, which is a massive tool yeah. for self awareness? Yeah. I I it's funny that you say that because I teach senior executives and I teach them. I tell them meditate and um, oh, so breathe. you were just a hypocrite. Uh, I, I, my last <laughs> session, I, I I confessed. I was like, I was a hypocrite because I've done this for years and I finally just started meditating. By the way, I'm kidding about. I know you are. I, I know. I, but I, I'm a hypocrite on a lot of a lot of the things I tell people to do. I'm not good at. I endeavor to do, but yes, I'm not good. Yeah. at. Yeah, and so I think that what meditation. Meditation has made me more self-aware about where my stress comes from and how to be present with it in a way to disarm it and be less reactive. So almost like to be less owned by my stress and less run by my stress. And to I, I would imagine to follow your own advice. Yeah. Even more skillfully, yeah. because if you're catching your stress in a high pressure moment 15 minutes earlier than you might have before because you've done all this meditation, well, then you can start doing these techniques of asking yourself the questions yep. or reappraising it cognitively yep. earlier. Yep. You're you're less far down the road. Yep. And they say they say research is me search. <laughs> so I can say a lot of these things. Um, and not follow them myself, but meditation is really 
helping me to follow them more myself and then just have these glimmers of insights on so many different things that I just feel my mind was so cluttered that it didn't allow me to have these deeper insights on my work. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. Let me ask you just in our, I'm sensitive to your time, but let me ask a few more questions about your research. One of them is that you've you've also, you've talked about talking to senior exec counseling or coaching senior executives, but you've also spent some time with police departments. Yes, yes. I, one of the most stressful environments is trying to figure out whether or not somebody is armed or dangerous or whatever. So my dissertation was actually a study where I looked at, um, where I stressed police officers out and um, looked at how stress affects their decisions on a computerized exercise to shoot or not shoot armed or unarmed black and white targets. And so this idea of putting together how our bodies respond with our decision-making was something that I wanted to further examine. They had done studies like this on civilians and found that civilians made those mistakes of shooting unarmed black men and things like that, like we saw with Amadou Diallo years ago. But what was interesting in my work is that I did find that police officers um, under stress, engaging in these computerized shooting exercises, were very skillful and they were not making the same mistake of shooting unarmed black men. Mm. What was interesting in... Um, my findings, though, was that what was happening is they weren't they were very accurate with um, armed and unarmed black men. But with armed white targets, they were letting those go away. They were not shooting accurately with armed white targets. So it's almost like the stereotype that if a person is white, they might not be dangerous and therefore I will not shoot at them. Um, was making them make errors on a different side than we typically see in the news. Mm. So um, that was one of my key findings. Um, and it I, I, one of the things that it taught me, because the department that I did that research in, they had actually done a lot in terms of um, training the officers around race. And they had actually had a, um, an African-American uh, leader of the department. So they'd been very sensitive on that dimension. They attributed the results to that. But it was still interesting that there are still errors being made. And how can we make sure that we are not we are equally treating all um, uh, all targets in, in daily life, whether it's police officers or not? So we can't let armed people get away regardless of their race. And how can we make sure that bias isn't filtering in in the opposite way that we see in the news? But what 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 I, I you know, this question of bias it's a hard one to untangle, especially for people who are carrying guns and or have these acute situations. Do you have any instinct about how to reduce the bias? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of departments are now doing first unconscious bias training um, and helping officers. Does with that, that work? Because there have been a lot of questions raised, and I talked about this with Dolly, about the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, which yeah. tests your bias. But there's a lot of... Research to suggest that it doesn't actually test much. So I think what the IAT does is it makes you aware that these biases can exist, but it doesn't necessarily predict behavior. So awareness doesn't always predict behavior. That is one of the challenges um, 
that researchers are trying to figure out, okay, well, when I do show this with the IT, what does it predict in terms of my actions and behaviors? So I do think increasing our awareness of unconscious bias is important. I think everyone needs to understand that these societal stereotypes and expectations, we all have them. We all experience them, whether you're black, whether you're white, you're Hispanic, you're Asian, whatever. And then the next step is, okay, I know it's it exists and it just goes back to the noticing. So what would it mean in terms of me differentially treating somebody? And how can I notice that I might do something different and be okay with being goodish and and make a different choice next time? So I think that officers getting this training is good. I think that what we need more of, um, and there are more companies doing this, is more virtual reality training Mm. where you're measuring your physiological responses, where you're really in the real world situation and showing that these biases can lead to these actual mistakes in shooting and low stakes context that's VR that's what we need more of so that people can see, wow, I, I do do that. I can do that and then adjust so that when they're, they're in the real world, that won't happen. And finally, uh, creativity. W- what have you found about the link between stress and creativity? My favorite example of this is the depressed artist. We hear about the depressed artist, Van Gogh, Schumann, you name it. And you would think that um, – with these depressed artists, many of them experienced really stressful situations that then led to them creating their best works. In my work, I show that when you're stressed, and I stress, I've stressed people out by having them experience negative feedback. And by the way, she designs these truly sadistic um, <laughs> stress things in the lab that she puts her test subjects through to make them stressed and then to learn uh, lots of stuff based on that, but yet you are diabolical. Oh, you know. Well, this is these are techniques to help us understand real world phenomena. Mm-hmm. So I'm really contributing to science <laughs> by doing these things. <laughs> That's right. Um, so let me step back for a second. I use hormones in my research. I look at cortisol, a stress hormone, testosterone, hormone linked to dominance. There's also this really cool hormone called dehydroepiandrosterone. When your cortisol increases which is um, suggesting that you're stressed, you also want an increase in dehydroepiandrosterone because it kind of counterbalances that stress. But low levels of dehydroepiandrosterone are linked to depression. So what I did in this study that I was talking about with creativity is looked at people's levels of dehydroepiandrosterone, stressed them out, and then looked at how creative they were because many of these depressed artists, low dehydroepiandrosterone, created their best work when they then had this stressful, negative mood-triggering situation. So what I did find is that if you are predisposed to depression and are exposed to a negative situation, then you're very, very creative and create great arts, works of art. And that's partially because you're like, wow, I got this. uh, um, I'm kind of vulnerable to experiencing depression and I got this negative. I want to change my negative mood. I want to go from this negative mood I'm feeling to more positive mood. And so I'm going to channel that into my creative project product. So I'm going to tear apart these pieces. I'm going to make these flowers. I'm going to do all this stuff. So the creativity is in a way acting as a mood repair to facilitate people going from this negative situation, this stressful situation to feeling a little bit more positive that's been channeled through the creativity. I mean, I find that, I mean, I'm writing a book right now based on 
the really stressful, horrifying results of a 360 review I did. And um, so I, I'm trying to do something creative and constructive, not only in my actual life, but in the book. Yeah. Um, and I can recall at least one traumatic breakup where I got really creative at work yep. as a consequence. And, and I don't know if I was kind of trying to paper over my feelings by distracting myself with the work. Maybe there was some of that too. But I also know that it was a, uh, a fruitful time at work. Yeah, yeah. I've also shown that when you have a stress-enhancing mindset and, again, get stressed out, you're more creative, come up with more creative uses of things. So this idea of how can your mindset about your stress and your situation be used and channeled in a way that generates more creativity, allows you to see connections between things. That's a piece of why I also um, am a big proponent of changing how you think about stress, because I do think that it allows us to see our world and the connections between things so much more clearly. And gosh, when we see things more clearly, I think that we can have even more of an impact and um, make a big difference in this world. I had read a study. I, th I think it was your study about task switching. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So because in this to me relates to creativity because I, you know, spent a lot of time writing and spent a lot of time wishing I could be looking at my email. I mean, not that I like my email, but I want to not be writing. Right. So, or I could be surfing or looking at Netflix or playing with a cat or something. In anything to get me away from writing, which yep. is the worst thing in the world. Yep. Uh, but you you had a view on task switching that was a little counterintuitive. Yes. So in our world, we're like, oh, I shouldn't switch between tasks because that'll make me distracted and I'm not going to be good or whatever. Um, my colleagues and I ran a study where we had people um, engage in creative tasks. You were given two tasks. And we wanted to see if... And we, they were giving a, per, a particular amount of time to complete the tasks in different parameters. You can either um, sit there and work on the task for six minutes or three minutes and then switch and work on another task for three minutes. Or you can regularly switch back and forth between tasks. And we wanted to see which generated the most creativity. And we did find that the switching back and forth did actually increase people's creativity. Because if you're working on one task and you get stuck, you're just sitting there. And you're stuck and you're stuck and no new things are coming up. But if you're forced to switch, it makes you less fixated on that one thing you were not getting the answer to. And when you move to the next one, it gets you out of that fixated mindset. And you're like, oh, and then you go back to it and you get out, you get unstuck. But does this contradict all the research around multitasking? So it does suggest that too much multitasking isn't always a bad thing. Multitasking isn't always a bad thing because if switching to something else can get you unstuck then that's a good thing but it seems like there's a difference actually between multitasking which is truly trying to do two or three things at once and unitasking with a switching in a sort of an orderly fashion that might not have the switching costs that are random and rampant when you're actually exactly. So multitasking is I'm good. I'm doing things that are pulling my mind in very very different ways. Our work suggests that when you are focusing on two types of tasks that are kind of similar, that switching between them will generate greater creativity. I'll just give you an example just from my own life. Recently, I was on a phone call with a lawyer, my lawyer, my lawyer. 
who was she was asking me a bunch of questions and I was trying to pay attention. My four year old son was there and we we're about to go see a movie and he kept asking me a bunch of questions and I was doing a terrible job at both conversations yep. and feeling really stressed. Yep. And I really felt it in my mind as I mean, probably this is one of the downsides of meditation. I was really aware that yes. this sucks. But then the other thing is I've been I've been working on this book that I've been complaining about a lot and and noticing that uh, this isn't I'm not switching every three to six minutes, but I am switching sometimes day to day where I will one day I'll work on one section. But until I feel kind of stuck and then I'll go to another section and run out the string there and I'll find that I'm rejuvenated on the other thing. That is exactly what we were trying to capture in our work, that if you give yourself the space that allows you to get unstuck, then that will help you in the different tasks that you're working on. And sometimes we say, we think, no, 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 I'm just going to put as much effort as possible. I'm going to focus and focus and focus. Sometimes you need to just not do that. And that's when you can actually come up with new ideas that are beneficial um, versus focusing and getting stuck. Is there anything I should have asked you but I didn't? Ooh, that's a tough question. Now there's so many things that are coming to my mind. <laughs> so what I'm going to say is you maybe should have asked me. Well, let's let, let's put a couple of things that came into my mind as we were talking that I didn't get to share. Um, one of my hopes with some of the work that I do when I talk about noticing is just as when I walk in a, the room, in a room and I'm like, oh, I'm the only black person in here, I want others to do that type of mental accounting and to go walk into a room and just do an audit and an assessment and say, huh, there are two black people here. There are five Latino people here. There are so that we have this consciousness around diversity for every environment we step into. And to what end? Um, I, I'm asking from the perspective of a white person. Why is it useful for me in a, in a society where that's dominated by white culture? And, and oddly enough, white people don't actually aren't really aware of that, although everybody who's not white is. Why is it why would it be important for me when I walk in a room to sort of clock that there are what the what the mosaic includes? Because if you clock what the mosaic includes, it might increase the likelihood that you will walk over to somebody who looks different than you and have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And when you have Could a Could that come off as like paternalistic and condescending? If you're a paternalistic and condescending jerk, yeah. <laughs> but if you're a normal human being who knows how to have conversations with people, <laughs> then no. Okay. It's it's and and I think of it as getting to know different people. Mm -hmm. We do that at a cocktail party anyway. So why or would not. It, or not, this is true, or we hide in the corner and wait for our friends to come. That's that's a whole different segment of the podcast. Um, but yeah, so I think it allows you to maybe be courageous and be goodish and have a conversation that you might not have otherwise had, learn something new about somebody that you might not have otherwise known, and given someone an opportunity to feel more comfortable in, the, in an environment where they don't, they aren't around anyone who looks like them. It's funny you're making me think. Uh, I have a friend. I'm not going to use his last name because I, he, I don't have permission to. I didn't know who's going to come to mind in this conversation. His first name is Willie. Willie and I have been friends for maybe 16 years. Willie's black, but he grew up in largely white environments, and uh, we're very, we've been very close friends in a social setting uh, here in New York City, which is reasonably diverse, but mostly white. And 
he has noticed on my Instagram feed that my son's best friend is black. And so he's often joking with yeah. me about like, oh, so you, your little your boy has a willy. Um, <laughs> and but it's it's you know, he came to my house yesterday and we we're having a party with all the little kids yeah. were there and most of the kids were white. And he was yeah. like, where's Willie? You know, where's where's the little <laughs> yeah. black kid? Yeah. And it was it, like he was really seeing everything through that lens, right. which, of course, made me see it through yes. the lens. He's also said things to me before about the importance to him of the fact that the 10% Happier app has teachers of color, even though, oddly enough, his favorite teachers are white teachers, which is interesting. But it was just important to him to know that the people who look like him are represented. Um, And so just for me, hearing that as a white person gives me a heightened sensitivity, probably not as much sensitivity as I truly should have. But it's 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 a wake up call yeah. and it's humbling because yeah. I don't see it. I'm yep. not on my mind much yep. of the time. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing is, um, I'm so happy I picked up meditation in my life, and that one of the things I've learned is that there's no one right way, and that as I get to know myself better and understand more of what I need, that um, how can I create the uh, mosaic of different techniques that will help me be 10% happier, that will help me? So so sometimes I feel like when I talk about meditation, I meditate for an hour. I'm. It sounds um, like there's one right way or there's everyone should be. Do- no, it's well, can we all be. Can we all find what's right for us and work hard at that? Because we're all so different, so that we should all um, seek what's right for each person. Um, and the other thing is really get to know your stress. Really, really work on getting to know your stress. Um, I think it's all connected um, because I do think when we do that, you'll kind of walk a lot lighter in life. Yeah. It will be a, there's just so much more levity that comes with with that. And I want I feel like we're walking around so heavy, carrying around so much. And if we get to know our stress and and use our meditation to get to why we care and kind of break down and peel back the onion We'll walk with a lot more levity, which is what we all need to do. Except getting to know your stress and like getting a sense of what are these patterns that are making us stress, this, the, the loyal soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. That's hard work. It so is. it may make you walk lighter eventually. Yeah. But let's not pretend it's easy. Oh, no. Walking lighter is not an easy thing. I like it. So, so I do, I love that you just reminded me that it is do the work, which is hard and heavy lifting. For that levity. And somebody recently asked me, um, and I answered this question in a podcast recently when we t- I take voicemails at the end of the show, and somebody asked the difference between insight practices, sort of meditation, yeah. and emotional work. Yeah. And I, I'm really waking up to the fact that meditation is great, but for me at least, it's not enough. Right. So it's it's very important that I've done, a, for me, it's very important that I've done a lot of meditation. I have a sense of how not to take all of my inner cacophony so personally, and yeah. so therefore I'm not... So owned by it. But it's also important to look at some of these ancient stories because they're still driving you. Medita- I'm not perfectly yeah. enlightened from a meditative standpoint. So I, I'm i still being yanked around in ways I am not aware of. I have blind spots. 
And so to do the emotional work, either in with a shrink or a coach or yes. both, uh, or your friends or your wife, and really look at this old programming yeah. so that it doesn't own you, that too is very important. Absolutely. And that, that to me is the mosaic, the mosaic of multiple things that we can engage in to to learn about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher recently, I was talking about what, what do you mean by enlightenment? And he said, one way to think about it is lightening up. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that was huge for me is reframing and saying, if I can't give myself 15 minutes in a day, if I can't give myself an hour in a day, but I'll give it to work and I'll give it to my, and I'll give it to this and I'll give it to that. What is that saying about how much I value myself? And so that's a piece of what's kept me going with exercising and other things. It's like, I let me give this back to me. Um, and supposedly I'll have more energy to give it back to other people, which has actually, I do mm-hmm. feel, mm-hmm. I really do feel that. So um, can we value ourselves as much as we value doing so much other stuff for other people? I totally agree with that. And, um, and I would say that for people like me and you who live in a world of relative privilege where we only have one job instead of having to work three yeah, jobs or yep. uh, have 75 kids or yeah, whatever, yeah. Um, we do have a little bit more time to invest in ourselves. But for those who don't have that luxury, a minute. Yes. A minute. You can give yourself a minute. You deserve a minute. And then maybe you'll get up to five one day. Yes. You know, that's that's just the hope. So plug zone. Let's just plug everything. Where can people learn more about you? Are you on social media? Do you have, I don't know, um, uh, workshops? I don't know, whatever you want to tell people about. So my website, com has more of my research where you can learn about some of these studies that I've talked about, um, studies on creativity, on negotiation, if that's something that you're interested in, on um, discrimination in the workplace, things like that. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it as much as I would like to, but I'm also on Twitter. And uh, email is also a great medium to reach me. And so, You actually want to put your email address out? Do I? I mean, I don't know. You want to get emails from lots of people? No. Okay. Okay. So she's not going to put her email address. No, I'm not going to put my email address. But we can hit you up on LinkedIn. Yes, but you can hit me up on LinkedIn and my website and Twitter and whatever. All right, I just saved you. Okay. Some people have given out their email address. Like those are people who like really want the emails. But I'm just guessing that you don't, don't, based on my prior conversation. Yes. 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 Uh, Yes. Not to be paternalistic. No, totally. That was just friendly. Thank you. all right. Uh, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so I, much for doing it. Thanks to Dolly pleasure. Chug. Yay, Dolly. All right. I love that chat with Madupe. And uh, you once again, check out the 10% Happier app for the new course called Stress Better. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Kat. My name's Lucia. And I was just wondering, if I were to get in a conflict with somebody, how do I balance letting go and realizing they're projecting their insecurities onto me and ruminating on the situation too much. Thanks, Dan. I love listening. Okay, so I have a bunch of things to say about this. I'm just kind of writing them down so I don't forget them. Um, I don't know all the details of your particular situation here, so I apologize if what I say isn't directly relevant. But when you talked about the balance between ruminating it on, on it you know, just trying to figure out whether you're ruminating on the conflict too much. 
You know, I I would go back to the old excellent piece of advice, seminal moment in my life, uh, the advice I got from the meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein uh, who was talking about the management of worry. I'm a big proponent of worry. I used to be an even bigger proponent of worry until I encountered meditation and realized that at a certain point, worrying and rumination crosses the line into like uselessness. And Joseph and I were talking about this at one point, and he said, look, you know, just say you're worried about missing your flight. At some point, you know, on the 87th time you're running through all the horrible ramifications of missing your flight, it might be useful to ask yourself a simple question. Is this useful? And I find that that little mantra is incredibly useful, especially when dealing with interpersonal conflict. Because, you know, the the old expression about, um, you know, holding a grudge, it's like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. But you're the one who's suffering. And so, obviously, I mean, I'm not telling you once you get in a conflict with somebody that you, sh- you should never think about it. By, by the way, that's just impossible. I also think a certain amount of constructive thinking about how can I communicate better? Uh, what's the best way to address this with the person? Uh, do I care about repairing this relationship? If so, what are the best moves? All of that makes sense. But at some point, you might notice that you're you know, just degrading your own happiness and energy levels and resiliency by stewing. And that's where is this useful can be very useful. The other thing I was going to say, and this may just be too personal or, you know, too unique to me to make any difference to you. But um, I'll just say that you, you use the word projecting. Uh, you were talking about the other person projecting or their insecurities or neuroses onto you. You know, one thing that I've learned and myself uh, in, in the past year since I received the uh, 360 review that I've talked about before on this podcast where I was – I got sort of candid, anonymous feedback from a lot of people in my life about my strengths and weaknesses. And one of them is that I personally have a bit of a poker face. I'm not super emotive. And that gives people a canvas onto which they can project their own insecurities or darkest, most paranoid fears. And and that, you know, is is a, sort of a poisonous element to uh, my interpersonal relationship. So just a th- uh, I just throw that out there because it came to mind, and I don't know if it's in any way relevant to your situation, but it might be relevant to the situation of somebody listening. And I found that being better at being a, a clearer communicator of what's going on for me internally, one, one word for that would be vulnerability. Go back and listen to the Brene Brown rep- uh, episode we did a few weeks ago who talks who's a master in sort of uh, skillful use of vulnerability uh, where you just talk openly about the stories you're telling yourself or how you're feeling at any given moment without necessarily bleeding out all over the place and being maudlin. Um, I found that that really can uh, prevent conflict, which is, of course, the subject of your question. All right, let's go on to uh, voicemail number two. Here we go. Hey, Dan, this is Shelby from Kentucky. Um, I've got a question regarding my fairly new uh, meditation and mindfulness practice, which thanks to you for opening up that door. Um, I am finding myself getting frustrated when I've got obligations to daily life that take me away from my perceived work. 
um, or my dharma practice, if you want to put it that way, I feel this sense of wanting to go off and be alone. And I think, well, maybe you need to, you just need a retreat. You know, you just need this, you just need that. I'm trying to challenge those thoughts because I know that you know, this is a lifelong endeavor. And I know people are mindful and have meditation practices and dharma practice while having children and multiple careers. And, you know, I'm, I'm fairly unburdened at this point in my life. So I am have that thought of if, I, if I'm already feeling um, like I don't have enough time or enough personal space to do the work the way I want, how will I feel uh, moving forward? For example, I'm driving five hours today. And I'm just enjoying listening to the podcast, the talks, and doing some car meditation, um, which I'm grateful that you guys offer on the app, by the way. Uh, but I'm I'm look, not looking forward to this evening where I'm going to have to um, basically commit time to a certain side of my family that I'm not as close with and just do the visiting thing, which, you know, afterwards I always feel good to mark those obligations done and and i know that they're the right thing for my community and my little family um but i find myself feeling that i can't be mindful in these moments and i know you're going to tell me i can practice that in those moments but uh, i'm just trying to get at what that feeling might be uh in the center of me that is it selfishness is it um am i taking this too seriously am i looking at it the wrong way that, um, you know, I feel like almost becoming, I'm becoming so mindful within that I'm becoming less aware of my surroundings. So um, maybe I must, must be doing it wrong. I'm not sure. Appreciate your insight. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Thank you. Uh, I'll do my best with this. I think you raised a lot of issues, and um, I sort of wish I could ask you some follow-up questions. But um, So I'll just kind of popcorn-style throw out some ideas. First of all, uh, congratulations on booting up a, a practice, it sounds like it's important to you and you're going for it. And uh, that, I mean, that's a big deal. I wouldn't overlook that. That's a, It's really hard for people to get started meditating and um, you're doing it. So I, I would just pause for a moment and celebrate that. Also, welcome to the cult. Um, your robes will be coming in the mail soon. Um, so just in no particular order, as I listened to you speak, I was just jotting down some notes. One thing I would say is if you're really feeling like you need time and space to to dedicate to this practice. I actually think a retreat would be a good idea. Now, not everybody can get the time or, uh, to do a retreat. Uh, the travel can be a little expensive. The retreat itself can be expensive, although uh, the two centers where I practice both uh, Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society, uh, they have scholarships. So at least that part, uh, you can get some you can get some help with that. But I would I would take a look at going on a retreat. Sounds like you've got the fire in the belly. I, I would I would check that out. The other thing is, you know, I, I on the one hand, it's great that you've got a lot of energy to do this, but it also sounds like maybe you're wasting some energy kind of kicking your own butt here about uh, not finding the time or space. So maybe you should lower the bar a little bit and give yourself a break and say, look, some days I'm only going to do two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes, but other days now I'm really going to clear the time to do more. You mentioned this. You knew I was going to say this, but I think free range, you know, daily life meditations. Uh, you're already doing it. You said you're you're doing a car meditation, walking between meetings, et cetera, et cetera. You were also talking about meeting with family members who you weren't necessarily, you know, relishing that opportunity. But you know, listening to other people, 
active listening can be a form of meditation. One little trick that I was taught recently that's really useful to get you to tune in and pay attention is something called reflective listening, uh, where you listen to somebody talk and try to reflect back by the end uh, after they've uttered their paragraph or two to reflect back the nugget of your understanding of what they've just said. Um, That forces you to really listen closely. And then people, even though they may not know it consciously, really appreciate when you reflect back what you believe you've heard from them uh, because it's just deeply satisfying to be heard. Uh, And if if they feel like you have they haven't got it right, they'll say, yeah, but also X, Y and Z. And then you reflect that, too. And I find that that really keeps me engaged in conversations and um, it requires focus, attention and mindfulness. And then finally, you know, I don't know what your schedule is, but you said you're not burdened in the way that you have multiple jobs and multiple children. And so I I think a real dry-eyed, skillful, holistic look at your schedule might turn up pockets where you actually could be dedicating that time to practice. Not that I have anything against social media or TV or whatever, but you might look at the times where you're doing that stuff and say, well, could I dial that down 25% and dedicate some of those minutes to sitting? So I, I, that's a bunch of tools. Um, as always, it's like you got to play with it and, and try a few things out and, and then come back to the list and, and start again. But uh, I, I, just to repeat, I think the bottom line here is you've got a practice going and that's a huge victory. Thanks to everybody who uh, calls in and does, do the uh, and leaves these voicemails for us. We love them. I love them. Uh, while I'm in the thanking mood here, uh, thanks to Mike D, our engineer, who's running the boards as I record this on Sunday morning, and also thanks to the people who produce this show and work incredibly hard: Ryan Kessler, Grace Livingston, Samuel Johns. Thanks to ABC News Radio, and also. Thanks to our podcast insiders. I I keep meeting them at public events I go to. These are folks who dedicate time every week to give us feedback on the episodes. We really take this very seriously and make changes accordingly. So deep, deep gratitude to you. And thanks, of course, to everybody who listens to the show. We'll be back soon with a guided meditation that we're going to drop into the feed in a few days. And then after that, we'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Shimon Yai. 
And I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.